0: Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Get the Let Out with Doctor Chuck Stead. Uh, We have a bit of an extenuating circumstance this morning, do we not, Doctor Chuck? Uh, Yes,
1: we do. Yes, we do. (laughs) The doc,
0: the doctor has COVID. And so we are recording remotely so that we can continue to tell you our story and, and to continue to engage our audience. Dr. Chuckstead has been gutsy enough to say, let's let's go forward and let's do it anyway. And you're feeling OK, though, right now, I hope.
1: Yes? Yeah, I'm still, te- I'm still testing positive, Joe, but I, uh, I feel like I have a little congestion and that's about it.
0: Good. OK. In my recollection, I've had COVID twice so far since this whole Fun little adventure for all of us began, and both times when I was at that stage, it was very near the end of it. Uh, good. And then uh, my understanding is we're you're good for another ninety days before you have to even think about uh, vaccinations again. So because,
1: yeah, that's actually just as well because the strain that my wife and I, that Cat and I both got, seems to have some symptoms that are unique to this particular strain that we've been looking at. And we won't have a vaccine for this strain until the fall anyway.
0: That's right. It's got to be updated every year, I guess. Yep. Yeah. Ah, the new world. Well, we had four really wonderful visits from Dr. Howie over the last four weeks. And Mm -hmm. uh, we even got a little bit of his environmental poetry at the end of the last two episodes. Yeah, that was fun. I really admire you guys. You're both PhDs in this field, but you're committed so much so to what you're teaching. It's not just a job for you guys. This this is your life. This is it really means a great deal to you. And you could see that, well you could hear it from the start with you uh, Chuck, but you could see that with uh, your colleague Dr. Howie as well. I am grateful. Thank you. I think uh, everybody should be because we need fighters like this, people that are, are invested and committed to the good fight uh, for, for our children's and our grandchildren's environment. So that having been said, let us commence. What will we be talking about again today, Chuck?
1: Well, in our last episode, we touched upon the work of Jan Barry, the journalist that was working with the Bergen Record. and the investigation that he started, he led a team for almost a year into what was going on at Greenwood. Now, actually, I say he led a team for almost a year. He was studying this thing for 20 years and finally convinced his editors it was time to put a big focus on what was going on with the turtle plant. So we started to discuss that. And I was hoping we could get Jan Barry as a guest, but I have COVID and, and Jan is away. But we may get Jan in some later episodes to speak up because he's a, a wonderful individual and has done tremendous work on behalf of the Ramapo Turtle Clan, as well as uh, on behalf of getting the watershed cleaned up.
0: Well, we look forward to that. I, I sure hope we can get him in at some point in time in the, in the not-too-distant future.
1: So we're picking up there. We're picking up with uh, the beginning of his series, which was called the Toxic Legacy Series. And while he was working on it, a number of people that he was working with at the record were kind of moved on. There was some pressure. But Jan himself, Jan Barry himself, was never pressured to leave. He hung in there and he formed this team of reporters. And then on a Sunday, October 2nd in 2005, the first of a five-part series appeared on the front page of the record with the headline, Ford, the Feds, the Mob, Making of a Wasteland. That's where we're picking up with that first episode in his series. So,
2: back home from church with a freshly brewed coffee, or perhaps at a favorite Starbucks with a latte, or the warm, autumnal day encourages taking the paper to the park, nonetheless, on this particular Sunday, for readers of the Bergen record, beneath the headline was a full color photo of hardened paint sludge in the woodlands of Ringwood. This first story was an extensive overview of the whole series. Even a casual read could not avoid the shocking news that there was enough paint sludge to fill two of the three tubes of the Lincoln Tunnel. Continued to the inside section, the story acknowledged tests commissioned by the Bergen record themselves finding lead, arsenic, and xylenes in the sludge with levels a hundred times above what the government considers safe. Under the headline, A Poisoned Landscape, A large color photo shows Angie Van Dunk holding her daughter, Jada, and her son, Dequan, at her feet, and a chunk of sludge sticks out of the driveway besides Dequan. The narrative was punctuated with Ramapo testimony about how they watched the dumping story unfold in their community. Quote, they remembered the 18-wheelers leaving brilliant puddles and splashes all the way up Peter's Mind Road. They saw workers push the paint sludge, the drums, and the waste into the old iron mines that riddled the landscape. So many trucks arrived in the dark that residents started calling it the midnight landfill, But it is the personal testimony of pain, frustration, and loss that is most compelling. Kelly DeGroat, who lost her 10-year-old son Colin to a rare bone cancer in 2001, said, quote, They can't tell me that this stuff that we're walking in every day and the air we're breathing up here isn't killing people, End quote. The cases piled up, thyroid cancer, platelet disorder, tumors, lung cancer, and organ failure, it was overwhelming. Then there is the story of Mickey Van Dunk, who as a boy fished for walleye and caught turtles for soup in the water tainted with paint. He and his friends molded sludge into baseballs, Other children made sludge mud pies. In fact, they would slide down a mountain of gray paint they called Sludge Hill. But this exposure had its long-term consequences. Mickey bears the boils and massive scars that tell his story. He has had 27 surgeries since he was a teen. Diagnosed with a rare condition called hydranitis superativa, which is generally a genetic disease, but exposure to pollutants make it worse. His story wraps up the first in the series with this commentary. This is the quote. Janet, his mom, is convinced that her boy was sickened by the contamination that is all around them, in the woods they hunt in, in the fish they eat, maybe even in the 20 pounds of deer meat in the freezer. She says, quote, nobody is going to change my mind. She's certain of something else that Mickey won't have any more surgeries. Why keep cutting on him, she says, smoking a cigarette on their front porch. There is nothing left to cut. The first installment in the five-part series was riveting and quickly became the talk of Bergen County. Jan's persistence had come to fruition, and the story of the Ramapo's plight poured into the hearts of record readers. A humble man who shied away from the limelight Jan Barry cut his teeth on the Agent Orange story he researched back in 1977. It was then, while working for the Morristown Daily Record, he attended a town council meeting where an environmental advocate stood and spoke about the chemicals used to defoliate a local power line that strung across the Rockaway River. The advocate claimed that these chemicals were the same toxic substance used to defoliate jungle forests in Vietnam during the war. The next day, Barry called the utility company and a spokesman readily admitted that the company had been using this material for nearly 30 years. He learned this was the same concoction that constituted Agent Orange, a formula containing 245T and 245D, both registered carcinogens with the federal government. Jan's editor was a Vietnam veteran and he encouraged Jan to pursue the story. The Morristown Daily had a circulation of about 100,000 and was considered a small paper. As Barry worked with another veteran who helped with the interviews, they learned that Agent Orange was spread in Nam with helicopter and on land by backpack sprayers. He interviewed people who trained for chemical warfare, and they had sprayed Agent Orange but were offered no safety training for this to begin with. DDT was sprayed for mosquito abatement in the camps and Agent Orange was sprayed for defoliant in the jungle. But pilots told them that sometimes canisters were mixed up and flight plans were jumbled, such that occasionally the forest got the pesticide and the camps got the herbicide. Among the stories he collected were tales of military dogs being tossed into vats of chemicals for pest prevention. And the dogs, along with the handlers and the veterinarians, were all made sick by this. It was during this time of research that Jan learned the term synergetic effect, that being the increase in toxicity when compounds are added together and find their way into the food system. The veterans called this a rainbow of poison. Barry stuck to it and eventually published a three-part series in the Morristown Daily Record. At the time, all across the country, other papers were looking into defoliant excess in the jungles of Nam as a result of pressure being put on them by young veterans. But these papers only repeated the government position, that the chemicals were completely safe. Jan observed that even the Veterans Administration at the time claimed that Agent Orange was benign. His reporting opened the door to a cover-up that ran through the halls of government and deep into the influence of the pharmaceutical industry. Eventually, this produced questions from veterans and their families about Agent Orange and its connection to rashes and skin irritation, miscarriages, psychological symptoms, type two diabetes, birth defects in children, and cancers such as Hodgkin's disease, prostate cancer, and leukemia. Once his series was published, A flood of information poured in from veterans of South Korea and Guam, as well as vets posted in Fort Drum, Fort Meade, Maryland, and Air Force bases in Florida. It was the same story over and over and over again. Chemical experiments without telling the captive veterans of the potential dangers involved. Barry found the military services, as well as the Forest Service, recklessly made use of a massive amount of chemical defoliant, and in the process exposed tens of thousands of people. In Oregon, women were having problems giving birth. A group of rural Oregon residents, disturbed by the miscarriages, the birth defects and the illnesses in their families, the livestock and the local wildlife, they believed it was in association with the spraying of the aerial defoliant, the same Agent Orange chemicals used in Vietnam. A lawsuit was filed to force the EPA's suppressed studies of dioxin into the open, and this case resulted in a landmark federal court decision which banned the use of dioxin-contaminated herbicides on national forest lands. Barry wrote that the government was involved in a cover-up on behalf of the makers of Agent Orange, which included Dow Chemical, DuPont, and Monsanto. He cited the Veterans Administration, the Department of Defense, the CDC, and the EPA as well. As the years passed, his work was picked up by veteran organizations and reproduced and shared throughout the world. Barry readily admits that he moved on to other stories but kept a close eye on further developments, as in the Agent Orange dump in Newark along the bank of the Passaic River. Disgusted with the slowness of the EPA's efforts, Barry observed that a cleanup of the old Diamond Shamrock Chemical Company site was planned for in the mid-90s, and only in 2014 has Occidental Chemical, the current owner of the site in 2014, even negotiated a cleanup plan. As he put it, this is Barry speaking, quote, we are a so-called democracy run by industry. Death matters little when profit is the concern. This was the background work for Jan Barry. It produced in him a stubborn streak, not easily discouraged.
0: My God, you know, you hear about this stuff, but then you hear a story like this that is so personal. And you hear about people whose lives were ruined by this. And you can't help but feel outrage. I just, I can't believe that we, that we allow this to happen. What are people thinking when they do these things? If it were their children, if it were their, their lives, how would they react to this if they were in a similar situation?
1: It, it's, a, it's such an important question that, that you're phrasing here, that you're putting together here for us, because it is their lives. It is their children. It comes around. I mean, what we're going to be talking about eventually in terms of Ringwood is the potential threat to the Wannacue Reservoir. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people access the Wannacue Reservoir. So folks who are comfortably ensconced in some high-toned, upper-middle-class neighborhoods in northern Jersey, they access the same water. What, we shouldn't be concerned about it? Just look at the turtle clan as your canary in the miners' tavern. That this is coming your way. But I think there's a level of denial here, don't you? Oh, yeah, the,
0: absolutely. I mean, I think uh, Jan probably said it best. You know, when profit is involved, it just doesn't seem like life matters anymore. And the situation that we're in right now, these things take years, maybe decades to Permeate the soil to leach through to finally reach water repositories that will someday become the drinking water that's coming out of our faucets. So this is yeah. not—we're not out of danger yet, and probably never will be.
1: We we were challenged. Uh, we'll talk about this later, but we were challenged in the studies, who, soil studies, we were doing in Torrin Valley concerning the potential uh, migration of the substances. And the, the folks that Ford brought in said the materials simply do not migrate. Well, that's just absurd. That's in defiance of the laws of thermodynamics. I mean, it, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that all things migrate, all things move. But what they were trying to say was the materials were contained within themselves, so they, they can't access the groundwater. And we proved them wrong by doing our own soil studies. And what we found was the material would break down and start to migrate with the soil, and we could actually measure, based on the sites we were looking at, how long it was taking for the materials to break down and start their movement. And in some cases, we had a, a migration of 46 inches, in some cases, 52 inches. We were actually digging trenches, following the material, until so we could get the areas tested uh, with no lead, because lead would be the indicator. And... Even then, even then, Joe, the response on Ford's part, and and frankly, even on the DOH's part, the Department of Health, well, at that rate, the materials will get nowhere. It's migrating. And what's happening in the migration is picking up speed. It's picking up potential further and faster and more efficient migration because the materials are becoming more soluble. So maybe in the first 40 years, you only got 40 inches. Well, in the next 10 years, you may get 40 feet, because it will continue to move. And that was a real threat to the well field, which we'll again talk about later. But uh, we had to prove that to the water company. They have their own engineers. They understand it. But we had to keep doing our work to prove it to the water company to get them to start doing their work.
0: You know, let me ask you this. The the authorities here, you you mentioned even the DOH, and down here in New Jersey, I think it's the DEP, the Department of Environmental Protection.
1: And New Jersey has a DOH as well.
0: And they have a DOH? Okay,
1: so... Yeah, a Department of... the DOH is just Department of Health.
0: So these are the authorities that are supposed to be the watchdogs for this, and I would imagine... They're supposed to administer the appropriate consequences and violations and charges to the polluters. So are they on our side? Are they doing their job?
1: This, again, is a really important issue. The regulatory agencies that have been established, and this includes the state agencies, in some cases the county agencies, which should be smaller, and of course the federal agencies. All of these agencies only got established because of public outcry starting back in the late 1960s. You could even go back as far as Rachel Carson's day in terms of the uh, public outcry. So they get established on behalf of the concern the public has about being poisoned. And that's that's a, a good piece. On the other hand, the government consults with the industries that we could understand are the ones we're most concerned about, the ones doing the poisoning, in terms of how to construct these agencies, how to do this testing, and what levels we should be looking at. For example, lead was allowed in water up until not all that long ago. Uh, mercury has been allowed. I mean, it's ridiculous that any parts per million are allowed, but there were certain levels in which they would allow because they would say it is so diluted. We found this all to be not true, that material accumulates. But these agencies seek out the, the special knowledge, the expertise of the same industries that the agencies are supposed to be watching. So you develop this sort of, you develop this collaborative relationship between the governmental or the municipal agencies and the industries. And of course the industry's argument is, well, we sustain the employment. We maintain the economy. How far do you want to push us? You know, so we've always got that. And uh, we have found that, well, I'll talk more about it later. Uh, we had more success on the New York side of the story in dealing with a state agency and not a federal agency. And part of that was because the bureaucracy wasn't quite as as difficult to cope with. But the other part was the New York regulatory people also lived in New York. We knew where they were, and, it, and, and it, it would
0: have a more of a direct effect on their
1: lives. I guess. Yes. You know. Yes. So it, it said, and I honestly. I've talked over the years with EPA people, and you'll hear their names as we go further along in these episodes. And I've certainly talked with DEP and DEC people and DOH on both sides of the state line. And everybody comes in with a tremendous amount of concern. And what you need to do is not so much listen to their words, but get the vibe. You need to pick up on Is any of this really resonating? Is any of this really going to happen? Are there any consequences to the things they're saying? And Joe, as you pointed out, more often than not, no. More often than not, they're more concerned about protecting the industry than the victims of the pollution.
0: That's what I think you see a lot, right, especially today through a lot of the regulatory agencies, where they I suppose there must be some balance struck between... The viability of a business and the product or the service or the resources it provides, which themselves may be essential, in this case, water, of course, and the safety of the citizenry. What I worry about, though, more and more is I feel like there is not a balance, that it seems always to sway back in the direction of the corporate need, that being Above all else, profits. So in the last four or five years, we have seen this Congress, the one we're dealing with right now, I call it the MAGA Congress, starting to strip these environmental agencies, these regulatory agencies of their ability to force different corporations and different uh, organizations to do what they have to do to properly administer you know, their services or their products without endangering the lives of people. I mean, essentially right now, the Environmental Protection Agency, they can report, they can tell you that there's a problem, but there's almost nothing else they can do anymore, thanks to the to a recent decision by the Supreme Court, which basically says they don't have a right to set into motion any any ramifications. Yeah. So
1: Yeah, they've been defanged completely. Yeah. And even before that, they were being defunded. I mean, that's one of the things that industry lobbyists have advocated for for a few decades now is the defunding of uh, regulatory concerns and laws. And there goes the enforcement of those things because you don't have the environmental lawyers that you need to work with these uh, agencies. They, they just all get defunded. You know, if you look at uh, the massive move for offshore manufacturing in America when we started losing jobs, it starts to emerge a few years after the Initial emergence, which was back in the Nixon administration, of the EPA. So, and then by the eighties, you've got the Superfund, which is the act that involves uh, uh, federal subsidy, support, matching industries' money and investment in doing reclamation and, and remediation. So, you've got these things happening, and you get more and more jobs offshore. Well, the reason it's less expensive to manufacture, to invest in your manufacturing, say, in Ecuador as opposed to uh, in uh, Newark, mm-hmm. is is because they, they don't enforce any. In fact, they don't even have regulatory laws to protect clean water acts and such. And if they do have them, it's just on paper only. So as we're bringing jobs back to America, as we're trying to make an America again, as that concept comes back to us, understand that we enacted enough regulatory law so that it would be more expensive to make in America because we're doing it safely, we're doing it cleanly. We're not producing the same level of toxins, or at least we're trying not to. Mm-hmm. And, and industry doesn't want to do that. They can make more money by producing you know, in a, in a lesser-developed nation and thoroughly poisoning the people of that nation because they could care less, which certainly doesn't make us any friends. And that's been going on now for really the better part of 40 years.
0: Yeah. You know, I have a background. I worked for 25 years for RJR Nabisco. And when we started to bring the hammer down on tobacco in this country and and quite successfully, I might add, there was, you know, we we're down to, I think, below 22% now of uh, smokers.
1: Yeah, we Uh, showed it was doable. Yeah.
0: The... Problem is then the tobacco company said, okay, uh, time to move the businesses overseas and start selling to everybody else in the world and uh, export the the kind of death and destruction that tobacco uh, causes on other nations. You mentioned defunding. And to me, this is such insanity. It's like saying, oh, there's a, a problem here. So let's just, we'll just pull the plug. Gee, the water isn't right. Well, let's just turn off the spigot and, you know, we won't have any water anymore. What kind of thinking goes into defunding? I, I can see reorganizing. I can see rebuilding. I can see retraining. But to defund different agencies is if somehow, we'll just get rid of the agency and that will get rid of the problem. In fact, it does get rid of the problem they have to deal with, but it certainly doesn't get rid of the real problem. If anything, it makes it worse. This is a a very insane way of trying to resolve and remedy situations. When I first heard defunding of the police, I thought, what an absurdity. You know, how utterly ridiculous. This is a trap to make us sound like we don't respect law and order, when in fact, that's what we need more than anything else right now, especially in these crazy days in this country. If anything, you don't defund, you increase funding so that the police can provide more services in a more streamlined and focused way, psychological services, all all the things that get involved in remedying serious law breaking. Yes. Yeah. Well, we certainly have opened up this uh, this can of worms now.
1: <laughs> we're
0: we're exposing the reality of this situation. So, what are we going to talk about next week, Chuck?
1: Well, next week we're going to look at another episode in the uh, Toxic Legacy series. This one is called "The Watchdog's Fail." It goes a little further in it, and it references the names of the directors and the various people. Some interesting names show up next week.
0: Okay. I think we really all have to get involved in this fight. Everybody's got to start to take a, a position here or we are going to harvest the misery that comes of not doing anything. Yep. Well, with that, we thank you for listening in this week. I know these are difficult things to hear, but we got to hear them. We got to get involved. Yeah. Uh, thanks a million, Dr. Chuck. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange, your hometown used bookstore. Now at our new location at 84 Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Now, if you've been here before, you'll love your next visit even more because we proudly share our new space with Astoria Hudson, a clothing boutique run by our good friend, Katie. The Montgomery Book Exchange is a place where great books survive the test of time. Where you can read a book enjoyed by someone a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margin giving you an insight as to what mattered the most to the previous reader. That's how Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their Facebook live sales or their intimate author readings and book signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks? And did you know you can get store credits in the form of Montgomery Book Exchange Book Bucks when you bring your well-loved and gently used books in for a store credit? You can also find your Montgomery Book Exchange friends every first Friday evening at the monthly Handmade Montgomery event, which takes place from 6 to 8 p.m. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade items ranging from pottery to jewelry. For more information, just go to the montgomerybookexchange.com or call them at 845 764 1787. That's 845-764-1787. There's one more thing. They have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Also at this location you'll find Miss Claire's music cupboard featuring the award-winning research-based kinder music program. The Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter is open Wednesday through Saturday. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can also contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652. themontgomerybookexchange.com Your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place.